Friends, we want to just wanted to just first of all just say thank you for the time that you afforded uh, my family and I to go on vacation. Uh, and uh, this is a gift from you to us, and we receive it with thankfulness. Uh, we went down to Miami because when you take vacation close to grandma, there are many benefits. So uh, Andy and I were able to spend some time, just two of us, um, as the children spent time with grandma, and uh, uh, we, we also spent time as a family together. So it was, a, it was a sweet time, and we're thankful, very thankful to be back. But as Indy and I were down in Miami last week, it was impossible to overlook the fact that Miami has a new hero, a city known for its football basketball and baseball for their teams is now inundated with soccer fans. Pink shirts with the number 10 in their back everywhere, little children that once aspired to be the next Dan Marino or Dwayne Wade now are fascinated with one name alone, Messi. If you haven't heard, Messi is arguably the greatest soccer player of this generation and his move to the once look luster Inter Miami has created an incredible, although newfound, soccer culture. But at times I found this new fascination with Messi a little overboard. Indy and I especially took notice of this when we saw an advertisement on a bus promoting the Messi chicken sandwich. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad to concede Messi's greatness as an athlete soccer in the world of sports but chicken sandwiches I am certain I know more about chicken sandwiches than Messi <laughs> Messi is definitely not the gold greatest of all times when it comes to chicken sandwiches so what does it really mean to be great what makes someone great this is an inquiry that can be somewhat subjective, right, as we can see. So it might be profitable for us to pursue the definition of greatness. So let's look today at Mark 9, 30 through 37, and let us allow Jesus to define greatness for us. Mark 9, 30 through 37 then they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to deliver, be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him on in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name 
receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Well, in the passage for today, Jesus defines greatness, doesn't he? He defines greatness for us. In a way, Jesus redefines greatness for us since Jesus' definition of greatness is contrary to our natural assumptions. When we think of greatness, we think of power, prestige. We often even think that people who are great should take pride in their greatness. They deserve it. They've earned it. But for Jesus, pride and greatness are utterly incompatible. For Jesus, to be great is to be humble. In Jesus' understanding of the Christian life, humility is indispensable, is an indispensable virtue we all must pursue. Humility is a necessary evidence of salvation. God draws near to the humble but opposes the proud. I want you to feel the depth of my statement here. I am saying that a person who has no interest in growing in humility cannot call himself or herself a Christian. Pride is incompatible with grace. As, as Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon of the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, he reminds them that blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. So what does this mean? What earth is Jesus talking about here? The earth here is a reference to eternal life. The ultimate promised inheritance that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Listen to how Paul puts this. Romans 4.13 For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heirs of the, whole, of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So in other words, the ultimate promise that God made to Abraham was the promise of an eternal land, the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus tells his disciples that only the meek, only the humble will inherit this promise. Therefore, humility is necessary for eternal life. Humility is necessary for salvation, not as the foundation of but as the result of. I have a friend that jokingly would say, I'm about to write my first book. I'm entitling it Humility and How I Achieved It. I mean, that's not humble, is it? Humility is such a puzzling virtue because if we worked hard to be humble and achieved it, guess what? We would boast. We would boast about our humility. And how oxymoronic is that? 
Humility is not achievable. Humility is one of those strange things that if you think you have, you likely don't. But if you believe you don't, you likely do. Humility, like grace, is a gift that we must receive. And we receive it from God. Humility is not achievable by works, but by faith. And faith in Christ. So, if you struggle with pride, or perhaps I should say, since we all struggle with pride. Today we have an opportunity to learn humility by faith, by trusting Christ, trusting the gospel, trusting his death and resurrection for us. So, we turn back to Mark, and uh, you may remember that a few weeks ago we found ourselves on a hinge point in the Gospel of Mark. Peter rightly answers the question, Who do you say that I am? And he says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Immediately after, Jesus began teaching his disciples. And what Jesus teaches his disciples is how great he is. And how is Jesus how does Jesus explain his greatness? He says, I came to die. I came to die. So Jesus explains what it means to be the Christ. And then he says, and this is your task as well. I will carry my cross, but you must carry yours. The Christ must go to the cross, the place of great humility and humiliation. And if his disciples will truly be his disciples, they will have to first learn humility. So as we turn to our text today, let's learn humility from Christ as we consider the example of Christ. And then the pride of the disciples. And then finally, true humility. So let's consider first the example of Christ. So in verse 30, we get more geographic movement. So if you remember, right, Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee, and his movement seemed to be somewhat random. He would go to Decapolis, he would come back to Galilee, he went to Nazareth, he went to some of the uh, regions south of Lebanon. And, and his movement in the beginning of the gospel seemed somewhat random. But since he's gone north to Caesarea Philippi, and Peter rightly recognized him for being who he is, he has had one direction, south. He's headed towards Jerusalem. He's going south. He's charging Jerusalem. He's going to conquer that city, that apostate city, that city that has left the worship of the one true God, the city that was supposed to be the spiritual epicenter, the spiritual compass of all Israel, but now was dead spiritually. Maybe you remember back in chapter 3 that as Jesus is going about his ministry in Galilee, he receives a, re a visit from scribes that came from Jerusalem, and as they observed what, Je what Jesus was doing, they said, this man is possessed by Beelzebub. So nothing good, nothing spiritual, nothing holy was coming from Jerusalem. 
Jesus needed to go to Jerusalem in order to conquer that city whose heart was hardened towards the one true God. Jesus needed to go to Jerusalem to conquer and redeem Jerusalem. But he would not conquer Jerusalem by the way of the sword as the disciples expected. He, his plan was to conquer Jerusalem by the way of the cross. He would not conquer Jerusalem through pride, but through humility. So again, Jesus here begins teaching his disciples about his passion, his death and resurrection. This is one of three passion predictions that we see in this section of the Gospel of Mark. The first was back in chapter 8. Peter recognizes Christ for who he is, and then Jesus teaches his disciples about his death and resurrection. The second one is here. And the third one will be later in chapter 10. The central theme of Jesus' discipleship, the way he taught his disciples, was the proclamation of his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, for Jesus, all discipleship centers on the gospel. Primarily the teaching of it. This is why we say that Central Baptist Church exists to proclaim the gospel. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. The proclamation of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, ought to inform everything that we do. There always has to be a connection with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection with everything that we do as a church. So he goes back one last time to the region of Galilee. We will not hear about Galilee again until after his resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. This time, not to attract the crowds that he attracted so often in that region. Not to heal, not to deliver. No. This time he didn't want anybody to find out that he was there. This time he was focusing on his disciples. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to spend time with them. Jesus would die soon. And the disciples needed to be ready to continue his ministry without him. So he says in verse 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. There's a plain word here. We can hear it even, even in the English, can't we? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The word man is used twice. And Jesus is doing this intentionally because there's a great contrast between the two people who are being referred to as men here. The title Son of Man is Jesus's favorite, most often used title to refer to himself. No other title is used by Jesus referring to himself more often than the title Son of Man. Contrary to what first appears to be the case, this title is not about Jesus' humanity, but about Jesus' divinity. Jesus is saying, the Son of God, God in the flesh, in other words, 
the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of man. Jesus is using language here from the prophet Daniel. In chapter 7, Daniel speaks of the Messiah coming in the day of the Lord. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heavens there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, this is the Father. So the Son is presenting himself to the Father, and he was presented before him, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What a glorious picture of the divine Christ. What a glorious picture of the divine Son. The Messiah comes like with the appearance of a Son of Man, presents Himself to the Father, and the Father grants Him dominion. What does this language remind you of? Reminds you of Adam, doesn't it? The son of men, the son of Adam, is granted dominion over the whole earth. So this title, son of men, is not surprising here at all. Jesus is here representing a new Adam, a second Adam. Just as Adam was made in the image of God, Jesus took on himself the likeness of Adam. The likeness of men. And just as Adam was given dominion over all the earth, Jesus was given everlasting dominion. Just, but unlike Adam, who failed to exercise dominion over creation because he sinned, Jesus would subdued, subdue not just the earth, but the universe, the cosmos. All peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. In other words, where Adam failed, Jesus would succeed. But how striking that the Son of Man, the second Adam, who came to do to make all things right, who came to undo the curse that was ushered in by the sin of the first Adam, this Son of Man, who had dominion over all things, would be delivered in the hands of men. Not just men. Sinful men. Peter highlights this in Acts when he's preaching his Pentecost sermon. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, same language, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of sinful, lawless men. So the one who had dominion over all men is made subject to lawless men. The one who is mighty puts himself 
under the frail. The one who is holy is made subject to the sinful. Peter adds something here, doesn't he? He says he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus went to the cross intentionally. Why? Because he's humble. His mission would be accomplished at the cross. So do not confuse Jesus' obedience to the plan of the Father and humility for weakness. No, his power was demonstrated through his humility. But the full message of the gospel does not end at the cross, does it? Jesus didn't just die, but he said that he would die and that he would rise again. He tells his disciples that, but they don't get it. They don't understand. And since the last time that that Peter rebuked Jesus, Jesus rebuked Peter, his disciples are now afraid to even question what Jesus is saying. But why wouldn't the disciples get it? I mean, we get it, right? We understand Jesus died and rose again. And that, by doing that, he conquered death and sin. Why wouldn't the disciples understand Jesus was clear? The disciples didn't understand. Because in their minds, they didn't have a category for strength through humility. The disciples didn't have a category of strength through sacrifice. In their minds, they needed a Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans. They wanted to be made free from the oppression that was outside of them. But Jesus knew that they needed freedom from the oppression that lived within them. That is sin. So Jesus came to deliver us not at this point from those who persecute us from the outside, but from the oppression of sin that lives in us. And this is why it was necessary for him to die and to rise again. Friends, Jesus came because he was the only one who could bear the full weight of sin. We... When tempted by sin, yield. None of us have ever bore the entire weight of temptation. We have all yield. But Christ on the cross bears the full weight of temptation. And he does not yield. So he presents a sacrifice that is sinless in a sense. But at the same time, because He is God, He is able to take from us our sin. So He bears on the cross the guilt and shame of our sin. It is our sin that He bears, not His. So friends, it was necessary for Jesus to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And we should have died on that cross. But Jesus said... I'll die for you. I'll die in your place. I'll take upon myself the guilt of your sin. And he bore the wrath of the Father on the cross. And he bore it fully. 
How do we know that he bore it fully? Because the father saw his sacrifice and said, that's sufficient, that is enough. And when Jesus cries out, it is finished, it is accomplished, he means every sin has been paid for. So friends, when we come to Christ and we believe in him, he takes on all of our sins. So we receive from him that which is not ours, righteousness. We are right before God, not because we are great, but because Jesus is great. So this is why he needs to teach his disciples, it is necessary for me to die and rise again because I'm great and you're not. But if you believe in me, you will receive my greatness. Friend, there is nothing great in you apart from the gospel of Christ that works to, get, to free you of the guilt of sin. There is nothing great in you, in your life, that you can boast on apart from the grace of God. So if you want to be great, if you want to experience eternal life, if you want to inherit the land that, that God promises to you, if you want to be with Christ for all eternity, you must believe that He accomplished it all for you. And there's nothing left for you to do except to believe, to receive his sacrifice by faith. This is the example of Christ. And yet, in light of this example, the disciples respond with pride. So let us consider now the pride of the disciples. So now, in verse 33, we're told that they came to Capernaum. Capernaum is a city in the region of Galilee. We've spent a lot of time in Capernaum in our series, series in Mark, haven't we? We've seen Jesus' ministry in the Sea of Galilee there. This was a city that depended heavily on the business of fishing. Not surprisingly, many, perhaps most of the disciples were fishermen. Jesus met and called several of them at the sea in Capernaum. There he spoke. There he calmed the sea. We also seen Jesus minister, minister in the synagogue in Capernaum. He taught there. There he healed many. There he cast out demons. But perhaps where we've seen most of Jesus' ministry in Capernaum uh, was at the house. What Mark refers as the house in verse 33. This definite article tells us which house this is. This is Peter's and Andrew's house. At this house, Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed the paralytic that was lowered by his friends back in chapter 2 from the roof. Crowds came to him at Peter's house. So now, for one last time, Jesus meets with his disciples in the house. There he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? As I said before, Jesus never asks questions because he's lacking information. He knows the heart of man. He's able to discern the thoughts of men. We've seen that before, even in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus asks questions to draw out the heart of man. He has a lesson for his disciples here. But this lesson has to be taught at a heart level. Once again, we find the disciples silent. 
even Peter, had a hard time being silent. We saw them silent earlier in our last passage when Jesus approaches them and asks what is happening here. And they have nothing to say because they were not able to exorcise the, de the demon from the young boy. So they were silent. They have nothing to say. Why? Because they're ashamed. They're ashamed of their pride. They're seeking to hide behind their silence, just as Adam sought to hide behind fig leaves. Jesus had just told them that he's going to die. He's going to willingly give up his life. And then he will conquer death. He will resurrect. Jesus is the greatest. The disciples are not. Jesus is mighty and humble. The disciples are weak and proud. But what is pride? What is pride? Pride is boasting on merits we have not achieved. Pride is boasting on merits we have not achieved. So let me ask you this question. What have you achieved in life? Do you believe that you've achieved anything in life that gives you ground for boasting? Friends, here is where the Bible confronts us so powerfully. You and I have accomplished nothing in this life. That is worthy of praise. Do, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Nothing. Not our religious lives. Not our family lives. Not our vocations. We've accomplished nothing. That was not simply given to us by God. This is what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? This is a rhetorical question. What is the answer? Nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the Christian should have zero room for pride. Our hearts should be completely void of pride because we understand that nothing that we've accomplished in life has been produced by us. And all our life accomplishments have been gifts that we received from God. All of our accomplishments have been accomplished by Christ in us. Pride is boasting on grace. All that we have has come from the Lord. So we ought to never see ourselves as great in any way. God is great and we are utterly dependent on the gifts He supplies. If there is anything good in us, it is because of God. Do you believe that? The disciples saw all that was being accomplished. The healings, the exorcisms, the authoritative teaching, the crowds, the fame, the dead being raised 
back to life. So they thought, look at all that we've accomplished. We're great. They wanted glory, recognition, but they had nothing that they had not received. We can be proud too, can't we? We can often think that anything good that we've accomplished in our lives is due to our greatness. If we have found success with our families, raising our children, we can think it's because I'm great. I'm a great husband. I'm a great wife. I'm a great parent. Others should learn from me. I should be a reference to others. And then we take pride in comparing ourselves to others. At work, we can think, I've accomplished what I've accomplished because I've worked hard for it. I'm great. I'm competent. It's been my diligence that has accomplished this. So we begin to demand recognition, praise, rewards. We can look at our church and think, my ministry, my committee, my Sunday school class, my preaching is keeping this church alive. This church grows because of me. Where would this church be if I wasn't here? If my family wasn't here? This church depends on my tithes, my finances, my gifts. And we began to think that Central Baptist Church exists because we are great. And not because Jesus is great. And in doing this, we began building our own towers of Babel. Building a name for ourselves as though we are great apart from the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. The antidote to pride is not the denial, denial that we are able to do good, but the recognition that anything good is a product of the grace of God in our lives. Friends, we look at what we've accomplished. And we say this is good. But it is good because God is great. Not because we are great. So Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples what greatness means. So let's consider true greatness briefly. So after shocking his disciples back to life. Jesus draws his disciples in and teaches them true humility and greatness. The Bible is a book of great reversals. And we see here a great reversal. The disciples wanted to be first. But according to Jesus, the first ought to be last. What does this mean? This means that the first, the great, is a servant of all. Greatness for Jesus is revealed through Service. Greatness for Jesus is revealed through service. And what kind of service? Service without an agenda. 
serving those who will not be, who will not bring about recognition. I had a friend back when I was in seminary. You know, seminary churches sometimes can become a competition among seminarians. You know, who gets to teach the Sunday school classes? Who gets to preach? Who gets to teach Wednesday evening? Because when you have a church, like I was a part of, that's 66% seminary community, everybody wants to teach. But even seminary churches struggle to find people to teach children. And I had a friend that faithfully, through his entire seminary experience, he taught fifth graders. And this friend was so dedicated that at times he would put in 20 hours to prepare his Sunday school class. Okay? I put in about 20 hours to prepare my sermons. Okay? So this friend saw so much value in teaching fifth graders that he would dedicate about 20 hours of his week to teach children the gospel. Nobody knew about this. The only reason why I knew about it is because I was his friend. And so greatness is revealed through the service of the least of these, isn't it? So Jesus takes a child and puts and brings the child to the circle and says, You want to be great? Serve this child. Serve children. Don't worry about the people of influence. Don't worry about all the seminary professors and all the PhDs sitting in the pews. Don't impress them. Impress this child. You want to be great? Serve this child. Don't worry about people of power, people of fame. Serve this child. Count of Zizendorf once said, Our goal in life should be to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Before I came to Central Baptist Church, one of my close friends said to me, I hope that you go there, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Well, that's good. That's good for humility, isn't it? Our names, friends, will not be written in the history books. But if we serve the least of these, we'll be great. Even in service, sometimes we can have a hidden agenda, can't we? But Jesus uses the example of a child because often serving children goes without notice or recognition. You don't serve children because you want a fast track. You want to fast track your way to the top. You serve children because you love children and because you love God. This is a good time for us to remember that we have wonderful volunteers in our children's ministry. Our Sunday school teachers our nursery workers, children in action, children's choir. Friends, you who serve our children, you are great according to Jesus. Often your service goes unnoticed, but you're setting an example to us of what true greatness is. Do you want to see greatness? Go see what the nursery workers are doing right now. They're great. I guess I can put a plug here, right? If you want to be great, you should volunteer in the nursery. <laughs> you should. You ought to. Moms, you who are raising children, spending your whole day longing for adult conversations, 
but engaging in conversations with children and often going unnoticed and unrecognized. Jesus thinks you're great. Jesus thinks of you as a model of greatness. You model to all of us what it means to be great because you see children and you say, I am going to live my life for them. So you may receive no recognition or little recognition to no recognition in this world, but Jesus sees you and Jesus knows your service and he thinks you are great. Jesus is telling his disciples that greatness is achieved when we serve the weak in the name of Christ. Central Baptist Church, let's grow in humility as we see opportunities to serve one another. And as we seize this opportunity, that by faith we can say, Jesus, I will trust you in what you say greatness is. And I will live my life not seeking recognition, but seeking opportunities to serve one another. Because I was served greatly by you. So that at the end of our journey, we can hear these words from our Lord. Well done, good and faithful servants. Welcome to your father's home. And we can respond. Then the righteous will answer to him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger or welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is greatness. This is true religion, serving others on behalf of Christ. But why? Because Christ first served us. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself, to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is the message of the gospel. At the heart of the gospel, there is a message of servitude. There is a message of a life given up for the sake of others. At the heart of the gospel, there is a Christ who serves by dying so that we could experience redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So friends, would you look to Christ and say, Oh Lord, teach me true humility. Would you pray with me? Father, help us. We're so prone toward, towards pride. We need to be broken and made again so that we can be humbled. Lord, use every mean possible to teach us humility because humility is necessary for eternal life. Help us, Father, know you and be like you, meek, humble, and mighty. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.